I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more fascinating uh, books of the season is 305 Lost Buildings of Canada by Raymond Biesinger and Alex uh, Bezikovic. Mr. Biesinger is the acclaimed Montreal artist who renders illustrations of these 305 buildings lost to demolition, fire, neglect, changing mores, and even mystery. They're evocative illustrations that make the buildings come alive once more. Alex Bezikovic joins me now to talk about working with Mr. Biesinger and how they collaborated on this book that captures the historical import and legacy of a lot of these buildings and at times provides cautionary advice with regards to what's saved or what sort of buildings should be built in our cities in the future. The book spans the country, and it's easy to get nostalgic even for places one couldn't uh, have possibly seen. There are buildings that have outlived their usefulness, such as buildings that housed residential schools or traumatic structures like that. I'll ask Mr. Bozikovic about the sort of Canada they represent in the book and uh, what bu- what buildings fascinated him. He is the architecture critic for the Globe and Mail and uh, the co-author of Toronto Architecture, a City Guide. I'll ask him about his thoughts on heritage as well as development in our cities when affordability seems to be foremost on uh, a lot of people's minds. This uh, new book is published by Goose Lane. We taped this interview earlier this week. Please welcome to the Plant Online program, Alex Bozikovic. Mr. Bozikovic, good morning. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Um, I, I was just telling you how much I enjoyed the um, illustrations in the book. Um, and I was uh, when I first picked up the book, I wondered why illustrations rather than, say, illustrations and photographs of the buildings. Um, I guess it was um, deliberate that, that they were to be illustrations, right? It was. Actually, the project began with my co-author, Raymond Biesinger, who is an artist and illustrator. He's been doing these um, posters of lost buildings of various cities for a couple of years now. And his approach, obviously he's an artist Mm -hmm. rather than um, only a researcher or a photographer, but his approach is also very deliberate to these buildings. He's sort of rendering them in a very, in a flat style, and one that only depicts certain details of the buildings and perhaps leaves some others out. So it also reduces the building to, to an icon. So, you know, you get a sense of what it looked like, you get a couple of key details, and those are, in their own way, telling a story. Yeah, and then me as a reader, I can um, read the accompanying text and then fill in what I want to fill in about sort of the, the building and, and establish my own memory of it, even if it's a building I've never seen before. Right. Right, I think that's exactly it. And there are a number of these buildings that have uh, resonance for a lot of different people, uh, and many of them were around for a good long time. So people have their own memories, people have their own their own views on these things, and that, in a sense, is, is, is part of the point of the book. How did you and uh, Mr. Biesinger work together in terms of collaborating on the book? Well, this came together during the pandemic. So when we met in person at the beginning, a lot of our collaboration was back and forth from Toronto to Montreal by email and via and calls. Um, so he began with a set of drawings uh, which make up the bulk of the book uh, for the cities across the country uh, and then we modified that list and added to it to make sure that certain issues and certain concerns I had got covered um, and then essentially uh, he sent me the drawings um, I sent back my comments I, and then you know I sent my words to him and vice versa um, so it's quite a, a seamless process actually with uh, sort of two parallel sets of research and two two people working kind of um, in slightly different ways towards the same end. And how did you settle on the number 305? 
<laughs> I wish I had a good story for that, but I don't. Um, you know, we, we stopped when we thought we had enough. Yeah, and then it, 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 is there a sort of a criterion in terms of, of um, what you include in a book like this? There were a few. So there are, essentially the buildings fit into two broad categories, buildings that are or were of real architectural importance mm-hmm. or of high design quality, number one, and then number two, buildings that were really important in the social history of their communities and of their cities. And sometimes those overlap and sometimes they are, you know, entirely separate. I also wanted to make sure that we got in a few buildings that represented some architecture that might be overlooked in the heritage world, and that mm. is public buildings, particularly modernist public buildings, um, which I think are really important in the history of our cities and which, because of the politics of heritage, sometimes are uh, are overlooked or undervalued. So, so um, one of the first things when I got the book that I thought, thought about is, is why do we need to know uh, of these lost buildings. I mean, and, and you write early on in the book that, that these are places that mattered. Um, it, it, so some people might um, wonder what y- your philosophy is in terms of, um, say, heritage, for example. I mean, it, it, does everything need to be saved? Absolutely not. Um, I, speaking for myself, and I think Raymond and I largely agree on this, but speaking for myself, I'm actually often quite critical of the way heritage preservation works. I love old buildings. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in architecture of all periods, and I'm very interested in the history of cities, but I don't think that everything needs to stay. Um, that's never been the way in which anything works, right? Cities grow and change. I guess the question is, when we do decide that certain places are important, which places are we deciding are important? And have we, in the world of heritage preservation, have we perhaps missed some stories uh, and left some people out in that process. Yeah, that's the thing when I look at the certain buildings in Vancouver, for example, that are in the book. Um, uh, um, like I think of Vice Chicken Shack or I think of uh, Hogan's Alley itself. Mm-hmm. Um, these are places that, that um, were lost because of, say, development in terms of, well, the city wanted to, to build a, a freeway through, through parts of Vancouver. And so... Um, those buildings um, were essentially gone um, because of that, and that, that does, um, you know, you go by those those parts of town, that part of town now, it, it, it's awfully different, and um, people don't know what was there. That's right, and you know, there is a group in Vancouver called the Hogan Valley Society mm-hmm. that is trying to make sure that the current um, redevelopment or reimagining of that area make space for institutions and for housing that will make it a center for the black community in Vancouver once again. There are some folks who are working on that. But, you know, it is a, that is one particular place that has been erased, and it's not an accident that it was erased. Yeah. I mean, it's not an accident that the small black community in Vancouver at that time was segregated into that relatively undesirable part of town. I mean, people lived there and people hung out there because they were excluded elsewhere. They did not feel comfortable elsewhere. They were made to feel uncomfortable elsewhere. And then, you know, the fact that that was the chosen site for viaduct, you know, again, is not entirely coincidental. And, you know, and this parallel story um, that have happened in other places, including in Halifax and in many American cities, yeah. in which kind of the remaking of cities in the 20th century 
had a hugely disruptive effect, but especially on the lives and on the places in which people of color lived. Now, there are some some buildings in the book that that um, that, that are gone that that uh, probably deserve to be gone or deserve to be. Um, um, I, I guess their their um, intended use has changed. Like I, I think of some of the residential school buildings and the sort. Um, in terms of um, those buildings and, and and wanting to say change them, um, there needs to be at the same time say if we knock them down, um, there, there needs to be sort of the recognition of what they once were. Otherwise, we forget what 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 happened, right? I think that's right. We have in the book a number of institutional buildings that were institutions that we have in the book a number of institutional buildings that were places of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we look back in the world of heritage architecture, you know, people tend to look back on our culture of, you know, the, the dominant culture of 80 years ago or 100 years ago or 120 years ago and sort of assume that everything is good, right? I mean, the basic assumption is that, you know, we don't build them like we used to. We've lost so many things value. That's kind of the default. But, you know, when you look at a residential school, some of what we have lost, you know, deserves to stay lost. Um, you know, it's not enough simply to say that a building was, you know, well-constructed or designed by an important architect, you know, which was the case for the Regina Indian Industrial School, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this was a terrible place that, you know, for more or less half a century, the Presbyterian Church you know, found First Nations and Métis children in their communities, you know, brought them here, you know, forcibly assimilated them, forcibly Christianized, Christianized them, um, you know, and also, in some cases, uh, staying there resulted in their deaths. I mean, one historian estimates that 100 children died in that particular school. Mm. So, you know, this is a building that might go into an architectural history book as being sort of typical representative of institutional architecture of the time, but, you know, the architecture doesn't tell the story uh, of what just happened here, or rather, you know, to sort of to celebrate the architecture would be to very deeply miss the point. Indeed, indeed. Um, is there a, a, a particular uh, place, or a, pardon me, a particular building that you, you feel is, is, is tragically lost, say? Well, I mean, the book is full of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and there's sort of a common thread in that so-called urban renewal of the 20th century. Destroyed yeah. a lot of really good um, public buildings and really a lot of really good buildings that were part of civic life, you know, in the early 20th century and the late 19th century. So, you know, there are many examples of that. But there's one that I, um, you know, really wanted to be included that is a little bit more offbeat, and that is the Davisville Public School building in Toronto. So this is a public school that was built in the early 19th and was designed by you know, a staff architect at the local school board, mm-hmm. designed in a way that reflects the modernism of, that was designed in a style that reflects the modernism of England over the previous few years, particular ideas that came out of the Festival of Britain uh, in 1951. And this is a building that you know had a very particular vibe uh, that was sort of unique to, to that specific place and that specific time. Um, you know, it, uh, the best way to describe it is a series of little schoolhouses, each one of which was this crazy sort of um, multi- multi-angled spaceship-like roof on top of it, you know, all brought together into this one uh, composition. And, you know, it was creative, it was interesting, it was architecture that was intended to 
it's gone, and it's gone after being um, undervalued and overlooked. Um, and that's very different from, you know, a city hall or a public market, um, you know, or a you know, neoclassical public library, the kinds of things that many people would see as a you know, typical um, heritage building or a typical lost building. But, you know, to me, that's a story, uh, both architecturally and socially, that, that's really interesting and deserves to be told. Yeah, I, mean, I remember that building. Um, you, you described the... Um the intercom system or the the, the lighting system because it was uh, it, it was uh, uh, one of the buildings was was for for deaf children right that's right and you know this is why um, this building not only was architecturally interesting it not only did it reflect certain particular ideas in school design that were current at the time and also but it also as you say you know was a, a school for deaf children um, and you know for a generation or two generations deaf students in that part of Toronto, you know, this was a, a hugely important place, you know, because deaf students had often been, not often, deaf students had been um, segregated or um, steered off into separate schools and separate buildings, um, and this was a place in which they were um, at least partly integrated, mm-hmm. and which students were taught in a way that was more progressive, and where being deaf was no longer seen as uh, Entirely a negative thing, um, but as something, but you know, simply as a different condition and a different way of learning. So, you know, the story is a little bit more complex than that. But you know, once again, for one particular group of people, this apparently ordinary place uh, actually had a lot of significance. Indeed, um, does the fact that that Canada is isn't as old as say other countries does that affect say our consciousness when it comes to the, the sort of architecture we see in Canada? I mean, there's no way of avoiding that fact. I mean, the fact is that, you know, um, colonial Canada was a fairly small and loosely populated place until well into the 19th century, right? So the bulk of buildings in Canada were constructed after 1880. And in fact, if you're more careful about it, the majority of all buildings in Canada were actually constructed after 1945. Mm. So the truth is that, you know, most of what we see when we look at our built form in our cities is quite new, um, even newer than most people might realize. And that is a little bit tricky for us to get our heads around, because when we think of heritage, the idea of heritage preservation as a movement really dates back about half a century now to the early 1970s, and it was all about saving the buildings, often the houses that were associated with the you know colonial elites of let's say, 1800 through to about 1920. Mm. So, I mean, these are buildings that... Um, so these are buildings that are in a series of historicist styles, as you would call it if you're an architectural historian, styles that use um, historical... that borrow from other periods, essentially, and are made out of often masonry and often with a high degree of handcraft know, because that was available up to a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we get our ideas of, of what was an old building or what people often mistakenly sort of tag as a traditional building. You know, that is what heritage is in the public mind. It's got to look old. It's got to look traditional. But, you know, that category is not a very meaningful category. And if you're honest about the history of Canada, a lot of our history and a lot of the most important history in, in a social sense is actually very recent. 
and I think we may have a little bit of trouble getting our heads around those facts, especially when it comes to the built environment. Do you find in your line of work that, that sentimentality is useful, say? I think it can cut both ways. People love a place, and my feeling is that when people love a place, that in itself has meaning. If a place is important to a community, that can be really important. But I think, that, excuse me, I'm going to correct myself. When people care about a place, it is important. Yeah. That matters. But I think when we talk about built, built heritage, it can be very tricky to understand what is worth saving or what it means to save a building especially when new development comes along. So I think of Honest Ed, the big famous discount store in yeah. Toronto, you know, which was torn down, a few years, torn down a few years ago to make room for a new mixed-use development. And that was a building that had a lot of meaning to many people, you know, including my own family, going back to the 1960s. But the building itself was essentially, you know, it was a mess. It was a bunch of sort of half-improvised additions sort of thrown together over a long period, um, kind of a Frankenstein of a building, uh-huh. you know, not especially well-built, not especially well-crafted. And the store itself was not doing a lot of business by the end, right? So when you look at a place like that, it had been a very busy store, which had been a landmark in the cultural life of the city for a long time. But by the end, you know, the store was not as important as it had been. And the architecture itself was kind of really nothing to, to talk about. So in that kind of situation, what do you save? And a lot of people were really sentimental about the store itself and about the idea of keeping it intact. But, you know, a an old discount retailer, you know, essentially in the middle of the Toronto region is not really a thing that has a useful purpose any longer. Mm. And many of the people who loved it most didn't actually go there anymore. So that's not to say that their memories or their feelings don't matter. But, you know, is that enough to keep a large building intact? And if you do want to keep a large building intact and stop it from being replaced Mm. by something new, you know, who keeps it open? What purpose does it serve? You know, there's sort of a, a fundamental tension between the physical and economic realities of keeping a building going and and people's feelings about it. You know, I mean, ultimately, sometimes things have to change and sometimes things have to come down. Now, affordability is something that, that I, I guess all, all, all of us in this country are contending with at the, at, at the moment. Um, being able to afford to live in, in a lot of the cities in, in this country is, is tough for a lot of people. Um, in, in terms of the new buildings, in terms of new infrastructure, um, it, it seems to invite um, more people into a space, but at the same time sort of sort of price people out or, or, or raise the prices for, for, I guess, access, if you will. Um, where are we in, in, in our big cities, especially in terms of um, so, sort of building the, the, the right sort of buildings that we need um, it's so that it is affordable or, or are we just buildings uh, to let other people in, say? Well, I have a different view on that than I think some people in, in the heritage world do. My general sense is that in Vancouver and in Toronto, the fundamental fact you have to deal with is that a lot of people want to live in these cities. A lot of people need to live in these cities. And that goes for the entire city region, but especially for the, the city of Vancouver itself and the city of Toronto itself. Mm-hmm. And the big problem you have, which is not the only problem, but the sort of underlying problem is that if you've got a lot of people who want to live in a particular place and 
aren't enough homes for them to live in. The people with the most money are the ones who are going to win. So, you know, and people who have less are eventually going to be pushed out or they're going to be outbid, as economists would call it. And that, to me, is a problem, and it's also a problem that we can fix. So I'm generally by creating new housing, and I'm generally um, receptive to the idea of creating new housing, especially in city neighborhoods where people can find the things that they need and find reasonably easy access to their jobs, you know, particularly on transit and without using cars. So um, I'm generally pro-development. The question is, you know, what form does that take and what is the physical impact of that on cities? And I think there are a couple of ingredients that need to be included. One is robust protection for tenants who mm-hmm. are already there and who may be displaced in the process of creating new construction. Yeah. But another is figuring out where that new housing should go. And this is where I think heritage is a little bit of a problem. Because the world of heritage preservation pays a lot of attention to houses. And it pays a lot of attention to older neighborhoods and houses. Yeah. And when you look at Vancouver and you look at Toronto, as in any other big city, the big the houses that exist in the center of a big city are now belong those now belong to people with money. They generally belong to people who have choices. And yet those are the same areas where we choose not to put new houses. Right? We choose to whether through the lens of heritage or whether through the lens of other ideas in the world of planning. We tend to leave the house neighborhoods alone, and we tend to want to put all of our new residents in a handful of, of, of other places, you know, which is where things like the honest edgery development come about. And I, think that whole, um, and I think that whole approach needs to change. I think we need to keep the buildings that matter, but we can't just say that every single house that exists is also important. Because it's that whole attitude of you know, locking down an entire city or locking down huge areas of a city just because they have houses in them <laughs> that actually yeah. leads to many sort of negative effects, including um, the displacement of existing renters and including the destruction of commercial buildings and cultural buildings because they're easier targets for development. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, what about this trend, Alex, of, of um, uh, an older building, say, saving the facade and then sort of gutting the inside and then putting something new inside? I mean, is, is that is that useful? I mean, it, is that... Aesthetically pleasing, even? I think it really depends. I don't have a really dogmatic position on this. That's sometimes called facadism. You mm. know? And I think it can be valuable in certain ways because many buildings of the, let's say, traditional buildings, let's use that category, you know, have facades that are attractive and have a degree of craftsmanship that is not easily available today. Or have, or at least are built in ways that are not common today. So, you know, keeping them intact such that you can see them from the street, you know, can be, I think, can be a good tactic in certain cases. I think it would be better than where we can when you're talking about a large new building going into place. I think the better solution is to try and keep the original building entirely intact mm. and to build something tall next to it, you know, rather than compromising and, you know, insisting on a shorter building that has to sort of squash and spread and, and eat up most of the older building uh, so that all you have left is the front facade. Um, you know, I mean, there are, a skilled designer can do any number of things that they can be sort of worth doing. But, I mean, if you're talking about saving buildings, if you're talking about preserving heritage, the best way of doing that is by preserving the building intact. And 
sometimes we can pull that off as long as we're not too fussy about a new tall building going next to a short, older one. And, you know, you see that in Vancouver, and I don't have a problem with it. I think, you know, on balance, that's a good way to go. So I'm a big fan of your writing in the Globe and Mail, and um, even though if I don't, I don't know anything about architecture, I enjoy reading your work. Um, oh, thank you. In terms of um, uh, seeing how uh, seeing how you do your work, um, I, I'm sure you look at other cities in other countries, and the architecture is obviously different. Um, do you long for Canada to, to say adopt some of the, the I don't know trends is not the right word, but some of the styles that we see in other countries? I mean, for for example, you you wrote recently about Block Two in Ottawa, um, yep. and um, at the end of the piece, you wrote that um, um, that architecture can capture government at its most ambitious and the country at its most sophisticated. Do you, do you think we do you think we see that sort of ambition or that sort of style in in this country that you would see, say, in other countries? Not often enough. I mean, I think the I care really deeply about public architecture. Mm-hmm. I think that public buildings are, you know, they matter because they are where people come together, whether that's recreation centers, and I wrote about one recently in Surrey, which is fantastic, right. yeah. um, city halls, you know, um, government buildings for other orders of government. All of those are important because, you know, they, they do, as you were saying, they kind of express this collective ambition and, and collective ideas. And there are other that do that better. I mean, the the best examples are really in Western Europe. I think the Netherlands, above all, really values public architecture and really creates places in which um, community is valued and community is, is celebrated. The thing is that in Canada, we have quite a lot of talented architects as well as some talented landscape architects. It's not that we don't have the capability to design well or to build well here. Um, I do see a problem with the lack of ambition in that our, you know, our businesses and particularly government just don't see architecture as being a thing that matters. Mm. And it can be. <laughs> it can be incredibly important in the cultural life of the country. It's just we need to value it and be willing to put a little bit of effort, not just money, but also effort into hiring the right people, into thinking through what shape a building can be and what ideas it is meant to express and you know if we do that if we care um you know i think we can do i think we can build very well and i hope that i will see that happen um in terms of the research that you and mr Biesinger did for the book um i would assume because you said earlier that this was done largely during the pandemic um travel was not something that you could do so was there a lot of time spent in say libraries and reading other books say Definitely. I mean, there was also a lot of time spent, you know, emailing with librarians, mm-hmm. checking online archives. And, you know, one thing that saved me is that there's a really tremendous amount of material available online now. Mm-hmm. And the public libraries and archives have digitized a lot of information. Not not all, not anywhere close to all. But, you know, there are a lot of useful resources that are available digitally. And, of course, I have a library here, too. I've been writing about architecture for years. And so, you know, I have all of this sort of key books about uh, Canada's architectural history and a series of books about the history of Canadian cities that I can kind of dip into. So, you know, certainly I had to rely on, on other people. Um, I wouldn't say that the research in this book is comprehensive, and I'm sure it's not perfect. <laughs> I'm sure I've missed things, and I've heard from a couple of folks about details that I or we have gotten wrong. But, you know, I mean, you do the best you can with a book like this, and we 
have tried hard. I and Raymond both tried hard to make sure that the the details were correct, and certainly that the overarching story about you know what this place meant, you know, is really rooted in historical facts and you know reflects what, in our view, is is really important about the place. And you know, as an author, that's the best you can do. And I hope that people will you know engage with those stories and and find things to celebrate, find things to mourn. Absolutely. It's a marvelous book. Alex, I appreciate your time today. Congratulations and continued good luck with it. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for this. The Twitter handle is Alex Bazikovic, and the book is called 300 Lost Buildings of Canada by uh, Raymond Biesinger and Alex Bazikovic. It's published by Goose Lane. Alex Bazikovic joined me on, li- on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunder.